Hey, thank you for tuning in. Uh, my name is Ryan and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads and I'm glad that you're able to take some time and be a part of the broadcast this week. Uh, whether you're watching on Thursday or Sunday or Tuesday or whenever you're watching it, uh, I am grateful that you are connecting together. So thank you for being a part of this. Let me ask this question. Who's your best friend? Do you have a best friend? Uh, who, who is it in your life that you would do anything for? Maybe a better question is who in your life would do anything for you. You know, about six years ago, I was attending a conference for church leaders and the topic of conversation and the keynote sessions amongst all the young uh, speakers that were up there and real hipster pastors, it, it all basically boiled down to a pretty simple question. How can we get more people into our churches? Now, there was lots of really great talk about fearless leadership, leaning into God's power, good organizational practices, but ultimately, it just felt like throughout the conference over the course of a few days, it was really just about how can we be more cool, more hip, more innovative, more creative. And these aren't bad things in and of themselves. I just found myself growing a bit annoyed by the whole thing. And I was probably at early stages of what would become a pretty deep frustration with kind of the whole emptiness of a spirituality that focuses really on just enrolling people into building programs or you know, new campuses or, you know, whatever it might be. And so the conference actually was just filled with, you know, what I call speaker worship, uh, standing ovations for speakers who seemed to do all the right things before they ever said anything. You know, it just felt like pastor worship and egomania was at its height during this few days that we were together. Interestingly, though, as frustrating as it was, this conference would be a real pivotal moment in my life. After a few days, the final speaker uh, came up, and uh, this was a man who I'd met before and had come to respect for his leadership and depth of pastoral care and concern for his congreg the congregation that he had served for quite some time. Now, this man was far from perfect, uh, certainly not the definition of hip. He was in his mid-70s, um, you know, and he carried with him a lifetime of learnings. These learnings uh, came from failures and successes, you know, learnings from relationships. So he came up onto the stage and there wasn't the typical hooting and hollering uh, for the young leaders who were there earlier, you know, far cooler, far more hip. Uh, nobody gave him a standing ovation as he slowly made his way uh, to the center of the stage. And as the lights kind of stopped moving and the haze creeped out of the room, he began to speak with a pretty still voice, a quiet voice that was worn from about five decades of teaching, preaching, and pastoring. He spoke with graciousness towards us young leaders. Um, he declared how impressed he was with our creativity and innovation and the things that were taking places inside of churches today. And he admitted that he probably had very little to offer the room by way of church growth tactics and techniques. But with a deep sense of humility, he assured us all that, um, you know what? I might not have uh, anything to teach you about planting campuses or creating more innovative worship services, but he said, I might have something to offer that would be of perhaps more benefit than the latest tips on church growth. And so with that, I kind of leaned in. And so he began to speak and he began to talk about the importance of friendships in the care of our souls. He masterfully looked at a Norman Rockwell painting called The Self-Portrait, and he took us on a journey into ourselves. And one of those meaningful points and parts of his talk was a story that he shared of a group of friends that they had been getting together for two, three decades. 
and they would go on hiking trips all over the world and they would spend time together with families and their spouses. But he talked about this trip that he had recently gone on uh, where they were you know, doing some multi-day, I think it was about a week or two, trek through some mountains throughout Europe and they were going from hotel to hotel, place to place, just hiking on the journey. And while I don't remember all the details of the story, the basics were that he himself had become extremely fatigued uh, halfway into a journey or partway into a journey one day. And he just began to feel very ill. He got weak, he got tired, and he wasn't sure if he was going to make it. He really thought this was, this was it. Something was seriously wrong. But his lifelong friends were there with him. And they all began to walk a lot slower. They all began to take a lot more breaks. You know, they were talking with him about his life and his family and his children and their memories. You know, they were keeping his mind engaged as they would have uh, just to just try and keep him moving forward slowly along. And so as they went, a two to three hour hike uh, became about an eight hour day of traveling together. And as he shared this story, he asked this question of us. And it's a question that haunted me that day. And it still does to a certain degree uh, manifest in my life and make me think a lot about uh, my commitments that make me think about what's important. He said this, he said, who will walk with you and who will you walk with? Who are the friends that you have that will stop life, slow down and be with you? You know, in that moment as I was sitting there as, you know, by a lot of standards, a successful leader, um, a growing church, all those things, I realized that I didn't think I had anybody to hike with me in life. And I really realized by his definition, the way he talked about friends, I didn't have any. And so a few weeks later, I was sitting with our church leadership uh, at a retreat we did every year. And uh, we were just kind of sharing about things we were walking through individually and what we felt like maybe uh, God was teaching us. And, and I remember kind of just being real and honest with this group of people um, that I would have said, you know, four weeks earlier, we're a friend, you know. But I told this group of coworkers and friends that I had made a realization that I didn't have any friends. Now, uh, when you're in a room full of people that think they're your friends and you say you don't have any friends, that, you know, that could be a bit offensive. But I just began to explain that what I realized was all of my friends were of a utilitarian nature, that they were all connected with me uh, through my positions, like either as a pastor or a leader or whatever. But these relationships were, were not simply uh, pure, true relationships. There was always some give and take back and forth. And I was realizing that every relationship that I had was really based on what I was getting or giving. And, and it wasn't camaraderie. It wasn't just love for the sake of love. It wasn't, you know, wanting to be with me simply because I was me or me being with them because they were them. There was always this other kind of dynamic to it. And I came to this realization that all of my friendships were a matter of convenience and not intention. Aristotle would call these relationships, the, these friendships, uh, friendships of accident, that they just come by. In fact, Aristotle wrote a lot about three different types of friendships. He talked first of all about these accidental or what I call convenient friendships that were based on utility, right? This is a kind of relationship where each party receives a benefit, right, in exchange. Um, these are usually pretty short-lived in the scope and scheme of our lives. They're not permanent. Uh, whenever that benefit ends, so does the relationship. A lot of our work relationships are like this, you know, neighbors. And, and this was a lot of what my relationships were, I realized, was they were based upon like 
this exchange, right? Um, they were maybe an employee or an employer relationship. They were a church board to me. I worked for them kind of experience. But, but the truth is, I, and I told that group of people that day, you know, the reality is when, when God moves me out of this place, our relationships are going to shift. And there's a good chance that we don't remain friends like we are. And that's one type of friendship that we have. Another type of friendship that uh, Aristotle talks about is the convenient friendship based on pleasure, right? And this is a friendship that we all have. We have a hobby. We enjoy. We join a club. We join some place where we can go and, and uh, do something that we uh, really love doing. And so you like to play golf, so you join a golf club. You like to scrapbook, you join a scrapbooking club. And so these types of relationships are really based on things like that. We compete on the same sports team. This is pretty typical of college friends, high school friends. You join a softball league. These are typically you know, emotional and short-lived as well. And they're great. They're a lot of fun, these relationships, just as long as the two people still enjoy what they're doing, that activity. But when life changes, and it always does, or uh, when we get injured and we can no longer participate in that activity, eh, the, the friendship kind of tends to end. Now, don't get me wrong. These, these relationships, these types of friendships, they're not bad. Right? It's not bad to have relationships that have a utility nature to them. It's not bad to have friendships and relationships that bring amount of fun and pleasure into our lives. But the truth is, these types of relationships, they really lack the depth and the commitment necessary uh, to be sustainable for a lifetime. And Aristotle talked about that. He said that, you know, these relationships are great, but they can't last. But there is a type of relationship. There is a type of friendship that he talked about, a more intentional friendship that would last. And it was based on virtue, right? And he talks about this third kind of friendship that is intentional. And that because it's not based on something outside of oneself, but it's based on something inside, it has a tendency to last a long time. These relationships usually begin because there's this kind of base level of goodness within a person that we just enjoy their presence, their company. Um, usually people who have a deep sense of empathy, a care for others, find themselves in these types of friendships. If you lack empathy, if you lack concern for others, these types of relationships generally don't find uh, their way into your life. Right? And the idea is that you know, where, where you're connected with someone far more and far deeper than you know, a work relationship or something fun that you do. These types of relationships sometimes form out of going through very difficult seasons together, but they are certainly strengthened when we have watched people and we see people go through their worst and watch them grow because of it. We grow together. Now, Scripture actually offers us some wisdom on this kind of relationship, on this kind of friendship. And there's two friendships in particular that can teach us some foundations for what it means to build and have these lifelong friendships, these people that will journey with us. The first friendship is two women, Ruth and Naomi. Now, if you're new to Bible study, this comes from a book in the Old Testament called Ruth. And it's a story of Ruth and Naomi, really. And it's a story of their journey together in life. And Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. She had some sons. Naomi did. Uh, Naomi's husband passed away. Her sons passed away. They all became kind of widows together. A, a huge famine came through the land. They didn't know what they were going to do. And so Naomi decides she's got to go back to her hometown. She's got to go back home to try and survive. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, uh, Ruth and Orpah, hey, you need to leave. I can't offer you anymore. The utility nature of our relationship uh, has ended. There's nothing more I can do for you. Go and find new husbands, you know, leave. 
And in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, we have one of the like, just most beautiful phrases, statements of friendship and fidelity ever given. And when, Ni- when Naomi is trying to get Ruth to leave, Ruth replies, don't ask me to leave you. Don't ask me to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And so the two of them continued on their journey. You know what's so beautiful about this uh, these few verses in Scripture is that they show us that Ruth, that Ruth made a choice, right? Ruth chose a journey. She chose a journey with Naomi that would share the good and the bad. She said, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to be with you and where you live, I'll live and, and I'm going to change my religion and I'm going to change my way of life. And the only thing that will separate us is death. She made a conscious choice to live into this relationship, to go on this journey whether good or bad. If we contrast Ruth to Orpah, who wasn't a bad person, but Orpah, her sister-in-law, you know, her relationship with Naomi was really of a utilitarian nature. You know, this was her mother-in-law. This was where her family of provision was going to be. And when that ended, Orpah left and she went away. She made a choice and said, I can't journey that way. I've got to go and figure out what I'm going to do. You can see the difference in the relationships that were there. This past week, uh, Wendy and I sat down and watched a movie that we had heard about, and we were kind of excited uh, to watch. It had Shia LaBeouf in it. It's called The Peanut Butter Falcon. It's a great movie, a great story, it had kind of a Huckleberry Finn uh, feel to it. And it's, it was just kind of like the, the coming together of these three friends, uh, these three people who would become friends and go on this kind of epic journey to help one who had Down syndrome kind of chase their dream of going to a wrestling school. It's such a fantastic movie. Towards the beginning of the movie, this, this, uh, this man who has Down syndrome is trying to break out of this home that he's been placed in because there was no other place for him and his parents and his family and had all abandoned him and he's trying to break out and his roommate in this uh, nursing facility helps him break out and he makes this comment about him being his friend or his family and and Carl the guy has just a small part in the movie he says you know friends are the family you choose friends are the family you choose it's a fairly common thing you might have heard said but it's such a great uh, story about people choosing to be family. And that's what we see in Ruth and Orpah. And that's what we see as kind of fundamental to these types of lifelong relationships is there's a choice involved. Another friendship that just you know comes out if you've read scripture, or if you're going to start to read scripture, you'll come across these two guys, uh, Jonathan and David. And they developed a friendship that is one for the ages, right? And there's a book called Second Samuel in the Old Testament that tells the story of the, the first couple of kings of Israel, Saul and David. And Jonathan was Saul's son. And David uh, had been introduced to Saul through a kind of a wild series of events. And, and Saul saw David and saw that, uh, you know, what David had potential for leadership and, and brought him in to speak with him and to kind of interview him. And he wanted to bring him into the army. And in this, in this time, this moment, like David met Saul's son, Jonathan, the prince, right? The heir apparent to the king uh, and the throne. And it says that uh, in 2 Samuel uh, verse 18, 
uh, it's actually 1 Samuel verse 18. It says, by the time David finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life. He loved him as his very self. That's fascinating. So fast. There was just something about the quality and character of David. There was something about the quality and character of Jonathan that these two men, their lives became knit together. They became bound up. It was inevitable that they were going to journey through life together. And it says that Saul kept David and sustained David on that day and didn't allow him to return to his father's house. He kept him in and gave him a job, put him in the army. And it says that Jonathan David made something called a covenant. Because Jonathan loved him as his very self. Now, this idea of covenant is is more than just a commitment. It's a deep measure of fidelity between two people. We oftentimes talk about the marriage covenant, right? That 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 there there goes with it blessings and curses and all kinds of uh, very interesting language. But what we need to understand is that this covenant was deep. And it was a lifelong commitment that they made to one another. And the nature of this covenant was not based on what Jonathan could do for David or what David could do for Jonathan. The nature of this covenant was based on their unfailing love for one another. Right? This unfailing love is a deep theme all throughout the pages of Scripture. It's part of our anchor verse for this series. But they made this covenant. They developed this friendship. And it was not based on what they could do for one another because there was really very little that they could do for one another. And there was such a power to this covenant because it lasted beyond Jonathan's lifetime. So so Jonathan and David have this friendship that lasts. It costs Jonathan a tremendous amount. It costs him really the respect of his father. Uh, Saul and David uh, have this massive uh, falling out. Saul accuses David of being a traitor and chases him down. He accuses Jonathan of being a traitor and uh, forsaking his family heritage. I mean, it is a mess. But yet in all of it, this covenant, this relationship, this friendship between the two stayed strong, even when they couldn't be together as friends. And we see the power and the strength and its nature of unfailing love because what happened was Jonathan uh, died in battle uh, with his father Saul. And after this battle, after the death of Saul and Jonathan, David would eventually become king. And as David became king, he started to consider the covenant that he made with Jonathan, his friend who had died. And he called in a servant and he said, hey, is there anybody left in the house of Jonathan that I can show favor to, that I can show kindness to? And the servant said to David, yeah, there's one. He has a son and the son was crippled. Uh, and, and now it's just kind of struggling out there in life. And so uh, David calls for the servant to go get Jonathan's son, uh, whose name is Maribel or Mephibosheth, depending upon where you read about him in the scripture. And, and, and he comes to visit David, obviously scared because, you know, this is the new regime, right? This was not just like a peaceful transition of power. We're talking about violent uh, upheaval uh, and violent politics. And so Jonathan's son comes before David. And it says that when Meribel, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, this is Saul's grandson, right? He fell face down in homage, right? And he's scared. And David said, Meribel. And he answered, your servant, right? He's positioning himself like, I'm your servant. I'm not loyal to my father, Jonathan, or my grandfather, Saul. Please don't kill me. I'm not going to try and take over, right? I mean, uh, he's been been crippled since he was a child. Uh, He he says, I'm not a threat. And David says, don't be afraid. 
I will surely be kind to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. Remember, Jonathan is dead. He, who knows how, how long it had been since he had actually was able to talk to Jonathan because of the feud and the war that was uh, taking place. And he says to, to this son of Jonathan, Mirabel, Mephibosheth, he says, I will restore to you, check this out, I will give you back all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you will eat at my table always. That's crazy. I mean, Saul was king. And, and the, but he says, listen, I'm going to give you all of your family's land back and you will sit in this throne. Like that's the power of unfailing love. That's the power of relationships that transcend utility or pleasure, but they're about commitment. And so here's a little bit of food for your soul this week, right? That's kind of the idea of this series, Soul Fest, is that music is food for the soul. So here it is. This is what I think we can learn and, and lean into and grow from, is that lifelong friends make choices that manifest their unfailing love for one another. No questions asked. They're going to make choices that are based on that unfailing love. Ruth, she has her reasons. She's going to follow after and be with Naomi. David makes choices with land and power. And he does this, no questions asked. This is what I'm doing. Because the unfailing love that they have for their friends, it gets manifest in the reality of their decisions. So what about tomorrow? right? I mean, we all have to go to work. We all have responsibilities. We're hitting this pause button, whether you're watching this Thursday or Sunday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but tomorrow real life comes. What does that mean? How do we start to live into this kind of friendship? Well, we have to identify who those people are in our lives that we have a connection to that go beyond utility, to have a connection to that go beyond uh, pleasure, that there's something about them that we're drawn to, that our lives are going to be intertwined, that there's providence behind it. And in those people's lives, to make that friendship last a lifetime, I want to encourage you to be a mirror and not a beautician. Right? Think about it when you walk through, well, I haven't walked through a mall in a long time, but if you walk through a mall and there'd be like the, the cosmetic counters and there'd be mirrors there and there'd be a beautician, right? And, and a person would sit in front of the mirror and it would show them their face and it would just reflect truth right? It would just reflect who they are. But what is the beautician doing? The beautician is trying to change the face. The beautician is trying to make the face into something else and improve the face, whatever it might be. But what I believe a real friend is and what it means to, to really live into this idea of a lifelong friendship is to not take on that role of a beautician. My, my job as a friend, a lifelong friend, you know, is not to change someone. It's not to be their accountability partner. It's just to love them. That's my commitment, is to love you and to give of myself and to make choices that manifest that love, no questions asked, because you are worthy of love, because you are my friend. Richard Rohr wrote something called uh, the Divine Mirror Meditation, where he talks about God as a mirror. And this is what I think is so powerful, is that we can actually start to live into the image of God when we become that same type of mirror that simply reflects back what it sees. Right? That mirror that doesn't judge. It doesn't try to adjust. It doesn't write commentary. Right? That's what we do. Right? But the mirror just simply reveals. It simply invites responsibility. And this is what he says. Roar says, a mirror, the sun and God are all the same. They're all there, fully shining forth. Their very nature is light, love, and infinite giving. You can't offend them. You can't offend the sun or a mirror. You, know, you can't make them stop shining. You can't make a mirror stop reflecting. 
You can only choose to stop receiving and enjoying. And then he says, as soon as you look, you will see they are there. As soon as you look, you see the sun's there. As soon as you look, as soon as you decide, you see that the mirror is there. You see what's looking back fully radiating. And it always has been. And their message is constant, good, and life-giving. I think that's that love of a friendship. And War says, there are only the lookers and the non-lookers. Those who receive and those who do not receive. I think friends learn how to receive in love and grace and learn how to give in love and grace the truth of who a person is. He says, when we learn to love anyone or anything, it is because they have somehow, if just for a moment, mirrored us truthfully yet compassionately to ourselves. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? They, they've mirrored us back compassionately, right? Truthfully. And when we experience that, he says, we grab onto it. Why wouldn't we? Because in that resonance, in that reflection, we literally come to life. We come to consciousness of ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to, to don't be the beautician friend. Don't be the one that has to fix and prod and always point out the flaws and change people, right? Just love, love that friend deeply. Embrace that friend. Refe reflect the truth back to that friend with compassion. And then I want to encourage you that these types of friendships, they take time and they take treasure. And so I want to encourage you to commit your time and your treasure and make them a priority. You know, as I walked away from that conference, I realized I don't have any real friends that I'm invested into. So I just began to think and consider and pray. And I realized that I had four people in my life who I was their friend. And they were my friend simply because we liked being together. And I had to go back, way back to junior high to find folks that, you know, they didn't depend on me for anything. Like, yeah, we had no kind of relationship other than pure friendship. And so I reached out to these four friends at that time. And I asked them, I said, I don't know about you all, but I'm finding a shortage of friends that are just a part of my life because they're a part of my life, because we share something in common, because our lives are connected, because our lives are bound together. And we had a conversation. We kind of all felt the same way. And we live in all different parts of the country. Uh, at this point in time, I was living in Maine. One friend was living in uh, Washington, D.C. One friend was living in Indiana. One friend was living in Missouri. But we made a commitment that day that we would do everything within our power to once a year get together and spend at least a long weekend just being together. And we began to kind of reconnect and re reestablish that relationship. And we said, this is going to be important for us to do. And these are these are three guys that I've known since I was in junior high. We were in each other's weddings. But we had at that point in time just kind of, it had become pretty casual. We said, we're going to become intentional. And so that uh, year afterwards, uh, we sat down. We, we said, where are we going to go? And we all met in New York City to kick this off. And there's a picture you'll see of the four of us there at Cat's Deli. This was the beginning of a commitment that we made. And we do this. Now, COVID has made it a little more difficult for us this year. Um, but that commitment to say, we're going to give our time to these relationships, to these friendships, and we're going to give our treasure. We're going to figure out how to make it happen. We're going to make those sacrifices just because our lives are intertwined. And these are three men that I would you know, lose my job for. And these are three men that I would drop everything on a hat for to be with, to care with, to walk with, to journey with, because I know how important that is. And you know, the reality is that these friends, they just bring so much life to my soul when we're together. 
When we get on the phone, when we talk, we laugh, we have joy, we have serious conversations about the world we live in and we challenge one another. And this is the beauty of, of what a lifelong friend can do. This is what a beauty of intentionality and a few friendships. It brings life to our soul in the good and the bad parts of the journey. It's not just the good stuff. It's not just the easy stuff. It's the intentional stuff. And that's what lifelong friends do. They bring life. They're life-giving to our soul. So the song we have today for you is a song uh, by Ed Sheeran. And this song is called Castle on the Hill. And this song uh, really kind of took a lot of people by storm. People loved it. And it's really a song about the power of friendship. It's really a song about, you know, longing to be with people that you grew up with, longing to be with people that you uh, cherish time with them. And there is a, a part of the song, a lyric that I love that I would encourage you to kind of listen for, where he just begins to talk about these friends that he grew up with and where they are right now in life. And this is what it says. It says, one friend left to sell clothes. One works down by the coast. One had two kids but lives alone. One's brother overdosed. You hear the good and the bad? One's already on his second wife and one's just barely getting by. Right? The reality is being on a journey to know and walk with people through the good and the bad. Like giving out our unfailing love to them. And then it finishes this little phrase with this line that I absolutely love. It says, but these people raised me and I can't wait to go home. These people raised me and I can't wait to go home. And that's the beauty of these kinds of relationships that they form us, they shape us, they create us. They give us a sense of identity and purpose that goes beyond utility or pleasure, but just to the very core of who we are. Check out the song.